If you have your Bibles, if you'll take those and turn, if you will, please, to the Old Testament, to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah. It's, it's a shame, really, that this little powerful little book is so infrequently read by Christians. It is so infrequently read, in fact, that many Christians cannot find it. So if you go to Genesis and turn right, you're going to be a while. So go to the book of Matthew and turn left and drive slowly uh, because you'll go right past Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6 following. I'm going to be reading from KJV this morning. I'm not hung up on it. It's not a religious thing. You don't have to have a King James Bible to go to heaven. One will be given you when you get there. But, but why stand in that long, embarrassing line? Now, I'm just joking. I'm always afraid somebody will shout amen at the wrong time. Kids at the university used to ask me all the time why I always read from the King James Bible. I said, well, part of it was loyalty. I went to high school with King James. And, you know, Jimmy, we called him Jimmy. He wasn't a king in high school. We called him Jimmy. The other part is all of the flowery Shakespearean language, all the these and thous that offend everyone else appeal to my creative heart. I like, I like all that sound, that flowery language. I can't get used to the contemporary versions where Jesus walks down to the Sea of Galilee and says to the disciples, it's happening, dudes. It's just me. But the reason I'm reading from KJV on this passage has to do with one word, and the word is grace. Oddly enough, in some of the modern translations, in this passage, in KJV, the Hebrew word kin, which means grace, is suddenly translated in modern translations, God bless it, which I guess is the same thing. If God blesses it, he has graced it. But grace is the better translation. All right, all that, here we are. Zechariah 4, beginning with verse 6. Then he answered and spoke unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is a type for Jesus, the prince of restoration. Saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain? Look at the word mountain. In prophetic writing, the word mountain may mean all kinds of things. What it almost never means is mountain. It can mean a force, a power, a dominion, uh, like a kingdom or a dynasty or something. Um, Jesus uses it that way when he says, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be thou removed and cast into the sea. He doesn't mean mountain. He means mountain, the dynasty and force of demonic evil. You can say to the kingdom of darkness, I have dominion over you. Be thou removed and cast into the sea. You see that? Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, thou shalt become a plain. Here's the revised Rutland translation. Who do you think you are, geopolitical forces of the present age? Who do you think you are, kingdoms and dynasties and, and emperors and armies? Who do you think you are? When Jesus shows up, you'll be flat as a tortilla. And thou shalt become a plain, a flat place, a prairie. And he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying grace, grace unto it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it. Now put your hands on the Bible, and let's pray together. Lord, with our hands upon the word and our hearts and minds, as open as we know how to get them, we're asking you to do all the rest. Come, Holy Spirit, rushing over the threshold of our innermost selves, 
that we may hear from you. In Jesus' name, the strong Son of God. Amen and amen. I was uh, raised uh, by interesting parents. Uh, my parents probably, my, my dad is in heaven now. He died at 94. My dad was a tough guy, combat veteran of two wars. He was a paratrooper in World War II. Between the wars, he switched to armored cav, and my dad was a tank commander in Korea. He was a tough guy. Um, until my dad died, um, he, he thought he could run you down and kick your butt. He couldn't, but he thought he could. Uh, my mother is 96, and she can. Um, <laughs> Uh, my mother and dad were not uh, formally educated. I'm the first person in my family to go to college. Um, my, my mother is a ninth grade dropout with the, uh, as high a native IQ as any person I've ever known. She believed if one could read, one could learn anything. And my mother uh, is one of the most truly educated people I, I know. At 96, she's still... Her mind is like a steel trap. She's a brilliant woman, has the functional vocabulary that would make William F. Buckley jealous. And she imposed that on us. She taught us the sanctity of words. She believed, my mother believed, that it was a sin against the cosmos to use a word wrongly. So we were forced to look words up, understand them, know them, discuss them. And it was important to her. And, and I see now how important that is. The society that loses its, or suffers even the diminution of its functional vocabulary uses, loses to one extent or another its ability to think. Because we do not think in pictures, we think in words. So if we lose our vocabulary, we may feel things at an emotional level, unable to find the boxcar sufficient to weigh those thoughts and emotions on, and so we become more and more frustrated and pent up, even angry simply because we don't have the vocabulary to think with, with which to think. I can show you what I'm talking about at a practical level. So here's a little boy in the fifth grade who thinks the little brown-eyed girl next to him is the cutest number that he has ever seen. He wants to tell her that and that he likes her a lot and that he wants her to be his girlfriend, but he can't think of the words, so he punches her in the mouth. That can actually happen at a societal level. A society can feel things deeply, passionately, but lacking the ability to think and express it, it just becomes volatile. It, um, it is, it is um, one of the problems of vocabulary. I see a lot of young people here. It's a youthful church. One of the problems with vocabulary, particularly the English language, is that vocabulary quickly morphs in meaning. So the word may remain, but the meaning may have completely changed. Uh, let me see the hand of everyone here. I won't be able to see you in Germantown, but God is watching. Uh, let me see uh, how many of you are 30 and under. Will you raise your hand if you are 30 and under? So a good number. Now here's a word of prophecy for you. My prophecy to you is that should Jesus remain and you live to be as old as I am now, that there are words that you use right now that when you are my age will not mean the same thing. They will mean totally different things. I can give you an example. Is anybody, there's nobody here as old as I am, but can anybody remember when gay meant happy? Anybody remember that? I want gay back. Who stole gay? 
when I was a kid, when I was in high school, gay didn't have anything to do with orientation. It was about disposition. Um, don we now our gay apparel? That doesn't mean Christmas and drag. Um, <laughs> gay just meant happy when I was a kid. So I was preaching recently in California, which is evidently where the English language will finally be destroyed. And I was speaking to a high school audience. And I don't know when I've ever spoken to an audience so enthused. They just were on the message. The response was phenomenal. And afterward, four boys came up to speak to me right at the front of the stage. And the first boy said, he said, Dr. Mark, you are one bad preacher. Okay, in my lifetime, bad has come to mean good. How did that happen? The second boy said, you're not just bad. He said, you're the baddest preacher I've ever heard. Baddest is not even a word in the English language. The third boy said, you're not bad. He said, you are one sick dude. One can only sense my level of personal affirmation. I remember early on in life, setting a sort of life goal of becoming a really sick dude. The fourth boy, not content with these low-altitude compliments, said, you are not bad, you are not sick. He said, you are the OG of crunk. I have no clue. So I teach the National Institute of Christian Leadership, and some years ago, a student came through named Tommy. He pastors a hip-hop church, believe it or not. So I figured Tommy could help me. I called him and said, Tommy, this is Dr. Mark. If somebody told me I was an OG of crunk, what would that mean? Oh, he said, OG, it means original gangster. You're the original gangster of crunk. I said, okay, see, Tommy, what I'm after, though, is, is what does it mean? Oh, 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 he said, it means you beat a Mac Daddy. I said, yeah, but see, now, Tommy, what I'm, what I'm trying to get here is a definition. He said, I'm trying, Dr. Mark. He said, it means you be off the chain. I just decided to leave it alone. Now, there is, if that happens to any word, there is a certain level of tragedy attached. But if it happens to our functional biblical vocabulary, to the words with which we think about and therefore talk about God, we may have distortions of our, of our fundamental concept of who God is based on our vocabulary. Years ago, I used to preach the Minneapolis Soul Fest. It was an inner city outreach. We had a big platform, had great banks of speakers up there. We had a band, blast the music out about nine decibels above the level where all the birds dropped dead. And we'd get a crowd and I'd preach. And the stage was high so that when people came forward at the invitation, uh, uh, the stage was about like this. And the workers would just kneel on the apron of the stage and pray with them. One girl came right here in front of the pulpit and put her forehead over on the stage and her hair fell beside her face. Nobody could see her, but I saw her, so I just knelt down. She never looked up. I said, Miss, I, I see you here. Do you want me to pray with you? She said, Mister, I need help. I said, Would you like the Lord to come in your life? She said, Pray with me. 
So I said, all right, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. I want you to pray after me. Father in heaven. She didn't say anything. I said, now, miss, I think we're not communicating. What I want, you say the words aloud as I lead you. Are you ready? Yes. Dear Father in heaven. She didn't say anything. I said, miss, what's the problem? The first time she looked up. This eye was swollen, completely shut. She had a horrible bruise across her cheekbone here, and her little lip was split right there where I could see her teeth. Tears streaming down her little battered face. She said, you know, mister, I need God, but I've got about all the father I can handle. And I realized that her approach to God, which who she wanted, was going to be warped around her misapprehension of the very concept of fatherhood. That it was there that we had to begin. Now here is a word which is used so broadly in the Christian, contemporary Christian world to mean almost everything that it's come to mean almost nothing. And that's the word grace. We use grace like agape mayonnaise. You just slop enough of it on anything, it'll make rancid ham taste good. But what does grace mean in Scripture? I found it intriguing. Perhaps it was largely my misapprehension that I considered grace to be almost an exclusively New Testament property and that law was in the Old Testament. Here is this dramatic visual portrait of grace in the Old Testament, in this little prophecy of Zechariah. The picture is here. It is of us, saved, born again, we know we're saved. It is by grace through faith that we're saved, not by works lest any man should boast. We know that. We're saved. And there is a huge mountain that separates us from our Savior. We know we're saved, but we see this as Jesus being on the other side of this mountain. And until this mountain is moved... We're saved by grace, but we cannot build this, this tabernacle, this temple, where it says, according to the book of Exodus, where God will meet with us. We want this mountain gone. It's a different mountain in everybody's life. Hurt, hate, bitterness, unforgiveness, drug addiction, alcoholism, racial prejudice, murder, whatever it is, it can be there, and it remains in life after life after life. We want that mountain gone. We know we're saved. We know we're forgiven. The problem is evangelicals think of saving grace as an isolated historical event. I'm saved by grace. Now I turn and take possession of this mountain, take responsibility for it, and it becomes my job to move this mountain so that I can really meet intimately face-to-face with the guy who saved me here. The problem is... The Bible is perfectly clear that you will never move this mountain. It's not by might nor by power. You're not ever going to move this mountain. But God's a gentleman. God's a gentleman. You want to to move that mountain? He will stand right on the parapet of heaven with the angels at his elbows and watch you back up and run at that mountain with all your might. And he'll say to the angels, here he comes. This boy's going to hurt himself. You run again, oh, God, that's going to leave a mark. Until finally we collapse at the foot of the mountain, discouraged, defeated, 
and we cry out to the distant God on the other side. This mountain is not moving. So I quit. What do you have to say to that? I quit. What we think is that from the other side of the mountain, we'll get a tongue lashing because we have projected onto Jesus the face, voice, and personality of our high school football coach. So what we think is that we'll get this. You, big fat sissy. If you can't play with pain, you can't play on the Jesus team. Now hit that mountain again, harder. I played, uh, I played high school football right at the end of the Crimean War. Uh, and I played in the old days. I wonder if there's any men old enough to remember. I played before there was platoon football. We didn't have offensive and defensive specialists. Anybody remember that? You know, there was, and there was only 19 boys in the high school. You just put your helmet on and played till you died. But I played quarterback on offense, and I played free safety on defense. I dreaded our scrimmages more than any game we ever played because our coach's son was the tailback, and he was the most vicious and lethal runner I ever attempted to tackle in my life. If Bobby got through the deep secondary, he came at you all helmet and knees and demons, and I was a gentleman. I didn't want to impede Bobby's path to glory. I would have escorted him into the end zone. But Bobby was on a search and destroy mission. He would chase me. Finally, I said, what's up with you? What is the deal? You're not the biggest guy I've ever tackled. He said, you want to know what's up with me? Come home with me after school. That shocked me. Nobody went home with Bobby. Not only was he the most vicious and lethal runner I ever knew, he was a vicious and lethal human being. As far as I knew, Bobby didn't have a friend in the world. I went home with him after school. We went in his garage and he pulled the metal garage door down and it looked like somebody had been hitting him with a sledgehammer. He said, there's your answer. He said, the day I started the sixth grade, my football coach dad put a helmet on my head and made me bend over at the waist and run into that garage door with all my might. 365 days a year, birthday, Christmas, New Year's, no exception. And any day I didn't hit it hard enough to please him, he'd lash my legs with a braided whistle strap. He said, you know, Rutland, after you run into a garage door every day for about five years, 158 pounds safety just don't look like much. Well, no wonder he was a vicious runner. No wonder he was a vicious human being. That's child abuse of the worst order. A father attempting his son to attempt that, which they both know is impossible, so that that frustration will build up in the psyche of an adolescent male so that he can then focus it on the opposition on a football field for his own glory as a coach. Shame, shame. Is that your Jesus? If that's your Jesus, your Jesus is my devil. Lashing us with the braided whistle strap of Protestant works righteousness. Pray more, fast, better, be a better preacher, build a bigger church. Win more people to me until we feel driven to try to do all that we're supposed to do to avoid the lash of Jesus and ultimately to move that mountain. The problem is the effort is condemned to failure and that's not Jesus. So we fall at the foot of the mountain and cry out, Lord, I quit. What do you have to say to that? 
And from the other side of the mountain comes words we never thought we'd hear. Good! I've been waiting for you to quit. Now stand back. And then it's a remarkable passage of Scripture. It says, he shouts. One of the few passages of Scripture. He shouts. What does he shout? Do better. Work harder. Move that mountain. No, in fact, he doesn't shout at us at all. He shouts at the mountain. And what does he shout? Grace! Grace! And the mountain melts like wax. The liberal humanist will tell us that God doesn't care about the mountain. That he just winks and says boys will be boys. But that condemns us to the destructiveness of the mountain in our lives. The holiness legalist tells us that God expects us to get strong enough to move the mountain. But the problem with that is it condemns us to the frustration of failure. You'll never get to, it's not by might nor by power. True grace says God wants this mountain out of our lives, but he wants to remove it. That's grace. Now, when we take possession and therefore responsibility for this mountain, we come in under the weight of the mountain and we, can I coin this phrase? We disgrace ourselves. We degrace ourselves. We ungrace ourselves. We become graceless. And therefore, we become graceless presences in society, in our relationships, in our families. We become graceless in our church. We become disgraceful. You can't give away what you don't have. And if the reservoir of grace is drained out of your life, we just become angry and nitpicky and critical and judgmental. And it's a proof of our disgrace, of our personal disgrace. We disgrace our churches. We disgrace our preachers. I, I pastored a huge megachurch in Orlando some years ago. And one Sunday after I preached, you know, it's, it's interesting. You preach under what you think is some level of anointing and somebody picks on some little thing. I went out to the lobby to shake hands, and this guy came up. He was so angry, he could hardly talk. He said, well, I'm leaving the church. I said, why? He said, because of the lie that you told in the pulpit this morning. I said, what lie? He said, I heard you. He said, you talked about a certain battle that happened in World War I, and you said that battle happened in 1917. He said, I happen to be an expert in American military history, and I know that battle didn't happen until early 1918. He said, a man that a lie about a thing like that will lie about anything, and I'm out of here. I said, well, bye. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, adios. I cannot help that. There, there's going to be something that somebody says, something, and we walk around... Look, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, among all the things it says about love, it says love is not easily offended. Love is not easily offended. So all the time, you know, somebody offended me, somebody offended me, somebody offended me. Maybe it doesn't prove anything. Maybe it does, but maybe it doesn't prove anything about what they said. Maybe what it proves is that your life is drained of grace and therefore is loveless disgraceful and easily offended. So maybe the issue is us and not them at all. 
We, di- we disgrace other people. Let me tell you about somebody else in that church, though, a man of grace, an attorney, a lawyer who's still my friend. God bless him. All the years I was there, after every sermon I ever preached, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, every sermon I ever preached, every time he came up to me, he said, oh, Dr. Rutland, that's the greatest sermon I've ever heard in my life. Every time. (laughs) I was born at night, but I wasn't born last night. Nobody can preach the definitive Christian masterpiece three times a week, year after year after year. I know that intellectually, but I like that lawyer lying to me. When I came out of the pulpit, I was looking for that attorney. I wanted my grace. I know what you're thinking. I can read your minds. You're thinking, oh, we can't pump Pastor JC's ego up like that. We can't do, go on and pump There'll be some mean old lady in the lobby with a pen. She'll pop him. (laughs) After 50 years plus in the ministry, you know what I've decided? In all of Christendom, there are actually only two races, pumpers and poppers. I believe that God is looking for a church full of pumpers on which he can pour his favor. The church of grace is the church where God is present usward to us and from us to each other. We disgrace our families. It's Father's Day. Let me give you a word. Dads, listen to me. Be the fountain of grace in your family. Be the fountain of grace in your family. Your kids, grace your kids. When we came back from Africa, our little boy wanted to be an American. He wanted to do an American thing. He joined the Little League. Oh, God, what a demonic experience. (laughs) It was just awful. I don't mean the little kids. They were cute. God bless them. I'm talking about the dads. Some big old fat slob sitting up in the stands in public yelling at his own little boy, keep your eye on the ball, stupid I, don't, I just wanted to climb up there and say, hey, keep your eye on this sport. When I was the president at a certain Christian university in the Midwest to remain unnamed, or Roberts University, <laughs> a dad came to see me, and he said, I'm here to talk to you about my son. He told me his son's name. Well, thousands of students, I didn't know them all, but I knew this kid. He was a great kid, played in one of our music groups. He was a chaplain in one of the dorms. Great kid. I said, oh, I know him. Oh, you must be proud. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not why I'm here. I said, well, why are you here? He said, that earring. He said, I want you to make him take that earring out. I said, please, sir, will you listen to me? Your son is a blessing to this campus. He is a Christian light on this campus. He said, I know all that. Are you listening to me? He said, I'm here for one reason. I want you to make that earring out of his ear. Next day, I called the boy in my office. I said, do you know who was here yesterday? He said, yes. I know why he was here. He wants you to make me take this earring out of my ear. I said, man, what is up with your dad? He said, can you believe that? He's just obsessed with that earring. I said, it's so stupid. He said, it is stupid. 
care about an earring more than you care about somebody that you love? I said, that's, that's so stupid to, to let an earring stand between you and somebody you care about. He said, I know. Oh, he said, I know what you're doing. I said, look, son, I'm not talking about whether the earring's good or bad. I'm not even dealing with that. I'm only saying that earring is standing between you and your dad. And one of you is going to have to be an adult. And I've met your father. (laughs) I've never been so proud of a kid in all my life. He said, you're right. You're absolutely right. He reached up and took that earring out. Laid it on the coffee table in my office. He said, my dad will never see that earring again. That's grace. That's grace. Look, I'm, I'm old. Look up here. I'm old. I know that. I still have trouble. Am I the only one? I still have trouble with boys wearing earrings. It's it, it just, you ever want to just go, <laughs> take that out of your ear and give it to your sister. On the other hand, how big of a deal is that? To let something like that stand between you and a brother or a sister or a friend or a relative or somebody in your church or in your world is disgraceful. We disgrace our spouses. We disgrace our spouses. Guys, listen to old Dr. Mark. I'm going to help you if you will stay with me. When your wife comes in wearing that dress she just bought at the mall, She's modeling that dress for you. Look what I bought today. Don't peer over the top of the sports page. How much did that set me back? I'm going to confiscate your credit card. You ruined it for her. She's modeling that dress for you. She walks out and says, look what I bought today. You throw that sports page aside and jump to your feet and say, whoa, (laughs) baby, look at you. You look like a million bucks in that dress. You wear that to church Wednesday night, and we're going to be late to prayer meeting. (laughs) Now, that's grace. That's what she lives for. Ladies, you listen to me. I'm going to help you now. Your husband is like God in one way. I saw three women right over there said, this is why I came right here. I got to hear this. (laughs) No, it is. The Bible says God has numbered the hairs on your husband's head. So has your husband. And he doesn't need you to remind him that the number is diminishing annually. (laughs) He wants you to grace him. When I leave, I travel, I preach all over the world. When I leave my house to go to some godforsaken foreign country, Michigan or someplace, (laughs) my beautiful wife puts her little hands on my face and she says, oh, Mark. You are the sexiest, handsomest man I've ever seen. Uh, look, look up here. <laughs> I live in the real world. But a lawyer and a wife who will lie to you are from grace. That's grace. Not only that, we disgrace our pastors, our churches, our culture, our society. We disgrace our families. Worst of all, we disgrace ourselves. We judge and condemn our own selves when God has said there is therefore now no condemnation. We usurp his job and place it on ourselves. You ever hear anybody say this? 
If you've ever said it, I know you'll never say it again. And if you ever hear anybody else say it, you'll know how to answer. I know God has forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. You ever hear that? Here's the answer to that biblical and theological answer, and it's hard, but here it is. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? God Almighty says there is therefore now no condemnation, and you say, yes, there is. Are you a better, more righteous judge than the God of the universe? When we look into the full-length mirror of self-evaluation, and we despise what we see. We condemn ourselves for all kinds of superficial things. We say, look, look at you. What happened to you? Where did your hair go? And whence cometh this fat? Look, this is not real. This is not real Christianity. You realize that, don't you? Surely you do. We gather here and worship, but this is not real Christianity. I've never committed a really venal sin in church. Real Christianity is Tuesday morning when you rush out of your house late to get to work and slam your hand in the door of your car. That's real. And nobody's watching. How you respond right there, that's Christianity. So you say, oh, I'm getting a lawyer. Ford Motor Company's going down. Or you blame God. Well, you've done it to me again. This is what I've come to expect. More often, we blame ourselves. Well, slammed my hand in the door. Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I. Or we could lift that mangled paw aloft and say, Grace be unto thee. Grant yourself the grace which God has already granted. Denying yourself God's grace is denying yourself that which God has already given. You're a jolly crew. I'm going to give you a gift. Anybody that come out to church, pandemic, everything else we're facing, you deserve a special gift. I'm going to tell you the funniest church story I've ever heard in my life. You need to laugh this morning, right? How many of you could use a little laugh? Here it is. It's the funniest church story I've ever heard. You do know the funniest stuff in the world happens in church, right? I mean, you're not living at that level of denial, are you? And the funniest churches in the world are spirit-filled. We are. So I've got a friend who's a pastor in another Pentecostal denomination, not yours, but another. And he tells me this story is true. Whether it's true or apocryphal, I don't know. He is, after all, a preacher. But he tells me it's true. He said he invited an evangelist to preach at his church. And this lady in his church, one of these self-proclaimed prophetesses, you know, they all, they have the red phone to heaven. Nobody can hear from God but them. So she came to the pastor and said the Lord had revealed to her that that evangelist wasn't supposed to be there. And the pastor answered as he should have. Well, God hadn't revealed it to me, and I'm the pastor. So until God reveals it to me, he's coming. You don't have to affirm it. You don't even have to attend. But he's coming. She wouldn't leave well enough alone, would she? They never do. The very first night, that evangelist opened his Bible, read his text, began to preach. He'd been preaching about three minutes. And that lady stepped out in the center aisle with her Bible, raised up her hand, went into that prophecy voice. You know what I'm talking about? Whoa, she said, thus saith the Lord. 
pointed her finger in the evangelist's face. Thus saith the Lord, thou thinkest that thou art a humdinger. But saith the Lord, thou art not a humdinger. Thou art a dinger. I said, I said, my God, Pastor, what did you do? He said, Dr. Mark, I froze at the controls. He said, nothing had prepared me for that moment. I couldn't think what to do, and I just sat there. He said, it was the evangelist who saved the day. He stared at her for a moment, and then he put his head over on the pulpit and burst out laughing. Then people over here started laughing over here. Then the musicians started laughing. That's usually where the trouble is. <laughs> Laughter feeds itself in the church. They began laughing. She, he said she slammed her Bible shut, went underneath the exit sign, and she raised her hand again and said, I'll never darken the doors of this church again. The pastor said, Dr. Mark, it was the hour of deliverance. Now, the funny thing is this. Now, listen to this. The funny thing is that old lady was right about one thing. This is the funny thing. People always want a word from God, a word from God. Here's, here's a word from God. You ready? Look right up here. All of you on this side. Look right up here. Thus saith the Lord, thou art not humdingers. Thou art dingers. Look up here. You all need the pastor. You too. You need this. Thou art dingers too. Said the Lord, thou hast done dinger stuff. Thou art not finished. But saith the Lord, I see thee in thy dingerness and I love thee just the same. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that great? Think of the psycho-emotional spiritual energy we waste trying to convince each other and God and ourselves that we're humdingers. And nobody believes it anyway. Look, let me, let me bring this to conclusion. Listen to this. What is God's word to us? What is his word to us this morning? Any morning, ever. What is God's, the, the core of his word? The last thing anybody says to you is important. I've been doing a little study on famous last words. John Wesley's last words, just as he died, he lifted up his head and said, the best part is, God is with us. Isn't that great? John Wilkes Booth, who murdered President Lincoln, as he lay dying, his last word was useless. We'll never know what that meant, but isn't that a futile and impotent last word? What is God's last word on the subject? What if, what if you were totally ignorant of anything about Christianity, a Bible, anything? Somebody gave you a Bible and you read through the whole Bible, page after page after page, until you came to the end of the Bible. And just as your hope is building up, you come to the end of the whole Bible and the, the last sentence in the Bible said, I hate the bunch of you. Thus saith the Lord. <laughs> is it just me? Would that feel a little bit discouraging? Or what if God said this? Okay, everything I've said, I was just joking. Some of you are going to go to heaven, some to hell. I'm not going to tell you which way I'm going to choose, and you won't know until the last minute. That's threatening, isn't it? You come to the end of the whole Bible, and God says, Look, I've said this, and said this, and said this, and you won't listen. 
I said it in the Garden of Eden. I said it in sending my son. I said it in the prophets. I said it through the apostles. I said it in the scriptures. I've said it on every page. Why won't you hear me? Now he says, I'm going to say it one more time. The last sentence in the whole Bible is, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Look up here. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, all the way, all the time. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Now that kind of grace really is amazing. God bless you and God bless Go Church.